On May 14, 1918, the Great War raged in its fourth year. In the Argonne Forest in northern France, two lines of trenches cut across a blasted landscape. On one side was a German army, on the other, the French, and in between, no man's land, where no man could show himself without being cut down by machine guns, artillery shells, or poison gas. At midnight, two men kept watch in a lonely outpost on the very edge of the French lines. The men wore French helmets and carried French rifles, but they were not French. They were Private Needham Roberts of Trenton and Henry Johnson of Albany, and they were soldiers in the U.S. Army. They were new arrivals to this hellish battlefield. As the two men took cover from German snipers, Henry Johnson heard a snipping sound that could only mean one thing. The Germans were coming. They were cutting the barbed wire, and they were going to seize this isolated position. With no help on its way, Roberts and Johnson had no choice but to fight for their lives. It's forgotten history. today is Algernon Ward Jr. If you uh, have spent any time in Trenton, you may know him as Algy the Great from the Garden State. <laughs> he is an activist in Trenton, and he is also a historical reenactor. And he is here today to tell us the story of one of Trenton's war heroes, a man named Needham Roberts. Thanks for having me, Dickon. Um, I'm pleased that you're interested in the story, and uh as a reenactor, I look for every opportunity to talk about the history of our area. And uh, Needham Roberts was one of the more notable African American figures during the uh, Great War period, uh, the First World War, 1917 through 1919. And let's dive in right into his story. What was his early life like growing up in Trenton? Well, he's a young man uh, in the age of about 15 years old. Uh, his father was a uh, reverend. Norman Roberts. He lived uh, off of Pennington Avenue on a sm small side street called Wilson Street. People familiar with Trent would know that it's right next to uh, Union Baptist Church. And he grew up in that North Trenton neighborhood. Uh, he did a little odd jobs. He was a soda jerk at one point at a drugstore, you know, making sodas and things like that. And he also uh, worked as a bellhop at the uh, Hotel Windsor, I believe it was, downtown Trenton, in fact. That's what he was doing as the war drums for World War I were beating, and like most young men, he romanticized the idea of going to war uh, and seeing the world, etc. So uh, his first opportunity, which was when his father actually gave him money to go pay a poll tax. Now, if you remember, poll taxes are now unconstitutional, but at that time, they had to go and pay a poll tax. It, just to be clear, the poll, for, for those who may not know, the poll tax was a fee you had to pay to vote, right? Exactly. And it was designed to prevent poor people and especially African Americans from voting. That's exactly what it was designed to do. But the Reverend uh, Robert, being a um, faithful citizen, uh, sent his son to go pay the poll tax. 
but he took the money and caught a train in New York to where his brother was living, Norman Jr., and uh, signed up for the Army. Now, what made him so anxious to be part of the unit in New York, it was the 15th New York National Guard at the time. Uh, their symbol was the rattlesnake. In fact, the Gadsden snake that you now see on uh, flags, don't tread on me. Mm -hmm. Well, that was actually the, the patch that they wore on their arms. They were called the Rattlers. The New York, uh, 15th New York National Guard were known as the Rattlers. What made, distinguished them was their band leader, of all things. Hmm. Um, their band leader was a man named James Reese Europe. What made him so important is that he was the Jay-Z of his time. James Reese Europe was the first African-American to play Carnegie Hall. Hmm. He was the first band leader on, black band leader on Broadway. He normally played at the Manhattan Club and the Cotton Club, and so he was a groundbreaking musician. He was a one-man musician's union. In fact, if you wanted to, the clubs wanted to have musicians, they'd go see Big Jim Europe, and he, all the uh, musicians at that time, he was in touch with them. And he would, you know, uh, get them jobs at various places in, in New York. And so he was a kind of very famous figure. In fact, he is credited with making ragtime popular. Mm -hmm. So he was highly sought after uh, during this period. And because he was so popular, the name of the Rattlers band uh, was, was widely accepted. He was very popular. He had people in his band such as uh, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Dooley, Dooley Wilson. Was this in the Army Band? This is the Army Band. This mm -hmm. is The National Guard at the time was a cushy job. Mm -hmm. You show up on a couple of weekends, you get a nice little check. Uh, if it's not wartime, you march around, and, and it's a little side, it's a part-time job. Mm -hmm. And let's say the who's who among a, the, the black community would be a member of the National Guard because it was, again, a cushy job. Uh, you got some notoriety, but... They were anxious to get the number of men. You need a thousand men to make a regiment to be full mm -hmm. complement. Well, James Reese Europe went around playing in the band, and of course, he's so popular, people would come out. So he actually helped recruit the number uh, to get a thousand guys in the regiment. And of course, in Trenton, uh, his fame had stretched this far. He was well known throughout the East, East Coast. So that's why Needham Roberts Needham went Roberts all the way to New York to, exactly. get, to get into that particular regiment. He wanted to be in that regiment because it was a who's who. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Robeson's uh, brother-in-law, uh, brother was the chaplain. Huh. Uh, Vertner Woodson Tandy, who's a founder of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, the first black architect in New York, was a member of this battalion. You had the Hernandez brothers, who later went on to write the Puerto Rican National Anthem. They were in this band. The Wright brothers, these famous drummers, they were in that band. Mm -hmm. So the Rattlers band was was quite famous, and so very attracted to a young man who romanticized the ideas of uh, what it would be like to be in the Army. So he joined the 15th National Guard, and uh, he, by the way, he had lied about his age. <laughs> he was only 15, and uh, I think he had to be 18 to, to join, join the Army at that time. But uh, he got away with it, and he actually joined the uh, New York National Guard. And because of James Reese's Europe's popularity, they got their full complement of men, 
And so they were one of the early regiments to have enough men in their unit to be activated. Hmm. So they were sent to training in Camp Whitman, New York, upstate New York. This mm -hmm. is all around October. Well, it's getting kind of cold in upstate New York about that time. And, uh, and this, was, this was a segregated regiment, this correct? This segregated. The Army segregated. Yeah. It had white officers. And their story unto themselves, uh, one of the white officers was a man named Hamilton Fish. Now, uh, you're probably not old enough to remember this, but Hamilton Fish served in the Senate all the way into, uh, there were great arguments with Ted Kennedy hmm. and Hamilton Fish. In, so he survived a long time to, be, hmm. to go into the era of Ted Kennedy serving in Congress. So uh, watch famous debates with Hamilton Fish and Ted Kennedy on television. But anyway, um, he was uh, one of the white officers, and they had a cadre of rather impressive New York uh, luminaries. Again, being in the National Guard was a cushy job, but people with a little status would get to be officers, and the men would also get to be, uh, had a little side money. So. Uh, they they were pretty they were composed of the who's who in in New York, uh, but when they got to Camp Whitman, uh, the commandant of the camp said you can't come in. This is a segregated camp. Uh, the barracks are only for white soldiers. You have to stay in tents. Well, this is cold. It's 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 getting in the winter time, and so Hamilton Fish, very well connected called his father at the War Department, said, you know, we, we can't stay in these tents in the winter. So uh, they decided they would send him someplace else to train, someplace warm, someplace like uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. <laughs> now you can see that this is going to be a problem. These New York uh, uh, Negroes, these uppity New York Negroes, <laughs> going to Spartanburg, South Carolina. And maybe we should pause again to talk about the state of race relations in the U.S. and even in the Northeast during this time. Like, I, I, th I think, you know, you know, people understand that it, it was very bad in the South, but it wasn't a picnic in uh, Trenton either, was Absolutely. it? Absolutely, it wasn't a picnic anywhere. Segregation yeah. was still law of the land. Uh, racial discrimination was just part of the... Uh, society at that time. Um, lynching was a frequent occurrence, and in fact, uh, you saw the northeastern popula black populations grow during this period. It's called the Great Migration. This is These are blacks fleeing the South because of the lynching, uh, Jim Crow laws, uh, sharecropping. People were coming north to try to make a better living for themselves with the idea that it wasn't as bad in the north as it was in the south, but they quickly found out it wasn't as overt, but it still existed. Uh, and in New York, being the metropolitan city that it was, even the African-American community uh, managed to reach some measure of economic empowerment. And in Trenton, uh, the story was largely the same. There were jobs, but they were not the kind of jobs that you would imagine would be very gainful. But there was better. And that difference was in the South, and Spartanburg in particular, is known as a sundown town. And what that means, if you're black and you're on the street after sundown, uh, you could be accosted, beat up, even arrested if it was a, a code. 
Um, so these New York Negroes who didn't get up until dark, <laughs> nightclub type people, are in, out of their element in Spartanburg. Uh, they didn't know that you didn't look a white person in the face. They didn't know that you had to step off the curb if a white person was coming uh, on the same curb. They just didn't have that upbringing, and so there was some culture clash going on there. Uh, one of the soldiers got beat up by some people in Spartanburg, and uh, there was a American Army unit also being trained in the camp, but they had fought on the side of the Confederacy. And this is an amazing story that you had threats coming from one American Army unit against another American mm -hmm. Army unit, and so the tension got quite high. There were still people alive who had fought in the Civil War. Well, the, the unit had a history. Uh -huh. They weren't. They hadn't. Uh, <laughs> I mean, none of the time, active officers would have. But like the yeah, cult. But, yeah, they they had the history of the regiment, yeah. and they knew that this regiment had actually been in battle with the Fifteenth New York. Wow. In the Civil War, so they were aware of it. I don't think the same soldiers were there. But right, and of course, we had way too old. But right, so <laughs> so there had been a history between them, and uh, they threatened to. Uh, uh, do harm. Well, Hamilton Fish said, I have a boxer named Kid Creole. He'll fight any three of your men, and any one of your officers want to fight any of our men, we'll, the officers, we, I'll take these sidearms off, and we can settle things like that, because if you harm my men, I've issued live ammunition. If you come to our camp with any trouble in mind, there's going to be a problem. Well, the War Department heard about this and they go, oh, my God, we send you to the north. Problem. We send you to the south. Problem. Get them out of here. Get them on the first thing smoking. So they actually rotated them back up to Hoboken to embark to uh, go overseas. So they're going to be one of the early American units in the European theater. And in the meantime, as they were waiting to embark, they were assigned to a place called Camp Dix. To dig roads, build barracks. What we know is Camp Fort Dix. Mm -hmm. They worked on some of the fatigue duty uh, associated with uh, forming Fort Dix. Hmm. And uh, they guarded bridges and tunnels. And uh, finally, when they were ready to send them overseas, they put them on a ship called the Pocahontas. This is a converted coal transport and converted it to a troop ship. And they finally uh, disembarked early. Uh, 1918, headed over to Europe. The interesting story about the Pocahontas is that on their way out of New York Harbor, a fire broke out in the engine room. So they had to turn around, put back in the port, and repair the engine. And meanwhile, the men are still, still aboard the ship. Finally, when they got that done, uh, they start heading out again. And then a fog drops, a thick pea soup fog where you can't navigate. Uh, so they had to stop. This, they're not out of New York Harbor yet, and they had to stop. And while they're sitting there, a barge comes along and slams into the side of them. Bam! Knocks a 12-foot hole in the hull. Well, we got to put back in the port and get this fixed. The officer said, no, no, no. We've been on this boat over a week, and we haven't made it out of the harbor yet. <laughs> We're not going back again. So they actually sailed to Europe, to Brest in France, uh, and made the repairs underway while mm. they were at sea. And, of course, they were entertained by James Reese Europe to kind of keep them around going. But that was a, 
Uh, it took them, it was quite an adventure just to get out of New York Harbor. <laughs> Finally, when they arrived in France, the reception was uh, pretty positive. Mm -hmm. uh, the Girl Scouts came and gave them flowers and wine, and the French people were cheering them as they arrived there. And these are African-American soldiers who had left New York at night uh, under the cover of darkness, almost sneaking out of, because of their concerns about how uh, they would be treated, and they arrive in France to a warm welcome. They were glad to see them. The French had been fighting for two years. They had lost millions of men already. So any help that's arriving was very, very welcome. And it just so happens that African Americans uh, brought with them American culture, which was very uh, admired, let's put it that way, in Europe. Uh, they brought this new kind of music, ragtime, with them, which uh, was fascinating to the French. And, uh, and so they were feted. They were welcomed uh, when they got to France. It's a very different experience than what they were having in segregated uh, America. Uh, James Reese Europe was invited to play in front of the uh, Hotel Uni in Paris. Uh, they did concerts in the, in the park. Uh, they were invited to Switzerland to come and play because their reputation had preceded them. Um, they would stop at every whistle stop. They'd get off and play, and the people would come out and dance. So they, were, they had made quite a splash in the European um, culture at that time. In fact, uh, England got a little jealous. You play for the French, you can play for us. So they <laughs> went and played at Buckingham Palace. Wow. So they were, uh, they had this new American jazz music now. Uh, the interesting part about that is James Reese Europe is known as the father of the jazz. See, his name abbreviate, abbreviated as J-A-S, and you pronounce it as jazz. Hmm. And he was playing ragtime, and they shortened that, called it ragtime jazz. And he's known as the father of so jazz. That's where the name jazz comes from? Exactly right. So this this guy is, again, you can see that he's, he's a, quite a... Uh, cultural icon mm -hmm. uh, with his new American ragtime music and how France and other places really uh, liked him. So this this is a different experience for these African-American soldiers as they're uh, landing in France. And of course the commander at that time was uh, of the American Expeditionary Force was uh, Blackjack Pershing. Mm -hmm. And his story, again, there's, there's so many branches on this tree of these stories that uh, each one of them could deserve study. For instance, General Pershing had served with Buffalo soldiers on the border, the, the punitive expedition that was uh, after Pancho Villa. To Mexico. Right. He, yeah. was, he was in the, uh, he commanded a couple of Buffalo soldier units that were in pursuit of Pancho Villa. And then also fought in the Philippines and also fought in the Spanish War. And so, because he had commanded black soldiers, some of his classmates dubbed him Old Black Jack Pershing, hmm. a kind of derisive name uh, based on that. But now he's a commander of the AEF in Europe in World War I. The American Expeditionary Force. Right. And who's his first soldiers? The African-Americans. I asked for soldiers, and you sent me a... Bunch of Negroes, and uh, you know he wasn't thrilled. You'd think he would have learned by then that they were actually good soldiers. He knew that, but he also knew what the social uh, atmosphere was in the United States at that time. 
and you know, uh, being associated with black soldiers was not necessarily one way to polish your medals. It was, you know, these, the idea was the, these soldiers weren't as good as others. But by the way, they were the most experienced combat soldiers in the army at that time because mm -hmm. of their exploits in the West, Indian fighting, the Philippines. They were the most experienced soldiers in the army, yet they still had the um, uh, stereotypes associated with it. We're mm -hmm. talking 1919 United States, and stereotypes are facts in many people's minds or in white people's minds, if you want to know really how it worked. So um, he wasn't thrilled with the idea of just getting these black soldiers he actually put them to work uh, doing fatigue duty, uh, laying railroad tracks, uh, unloading ships, uh, you know, repairing roads. Um, but these black soldiers turned lemons into lemonade. They raced other regiments unloading ships. They set records on how fast they could unload a ship. And many of them had could drive, and so getting the material from the ship to the front, they actually set new records in being able to do that just as a way of turning their energy into something positive. But the French had lost many, they had been fighting for two years already, and they had lost millions of soldiers um, in trench warfare. And they were quite used to having black soldiers in, in the French army, uh, Moroccans, Algerians, Chadians. Uh, French had a colonial they, empire. They had a colonial empire, so they were quite used to having uh, black soldiers in the army, so it was no a problem for them. They needed men, and so they asked the American army, "Can we have these soldiers? If you you got them unloading ships, we need them on the front. Mm -hmm. So give them to us." And so, in fact, they took the ninety second and ninety third divisions into the French Fourth Army mm -hmm. and began to train them to, to move them to the front. That's kind of unusual in American military history for a, an American military unit to be turned over to a foreign power. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> I've right. never heard of that before. That's right. And there's a lot of unique things uh, that happened to African Americans serving in the military. And this mm -hmm. is one of the sagas uh, that needs to be explained. Yes, these two American divisions, black soldiers, were literally loaned to the French army, and they had were assigned French officers. Now, um, Black Jack Pershing made a big point of he wanted to command, uh, American troops would be under American command. Mm -hmm. But in this case, he made certainly made an exception. He mm -hmm. loaned them to the French. Uh, that can only be based on the nature of the soldiers <clears throat> that he felt he could loan to the French army. So they wound up in the French Fourth Army. They were trained in French tactics. Mm -hmm. uh, they had French liaison officers who actually issued their orders in French and they had to be translated. Mm -hmm. Many of these soldiers started learning French in order mm -hmm. to communicate with their, uh, their officers. They were trained to use a machine gun. Most American soldiers, the, the American Army was slow in adopting the machine gun. Mm -hmm. uh, they said that the best the most lethal weapon on the battlefield is an American infantry with a rifle. This is the whole Sergeant York mythos. Mm -hmm. That see, there you go, look, guy like York can can do all these kind of things. But the French also knew that the machine gun uh, in this war was uh, the most lethal weapon. In fact, trench warfare came about because you could not march across the field in a line anymore because machine guns would 
destroy your, your troops. And so the these African Americans were trained in the use of heavy and light machine guns, which was different from what was being uh, promoted by the American Army. Mm. So uh, they were being prepared for what they really were going to face on the front right. lines so, in France. So they were making use of what the French had learned in, in, in what, uh, three years of, three of, years of trench death. warfare. Exactly right. I, so they had some interesting tactics. Uh, I saw someplace that they would, they would make catapults and throw grenades with catapults. Is that true? I can't speak to that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any information regarding those, but... Uh, grenades were certainly part of uh, trench warfare, a very important part. That's mm-hmm. how you attack a machine gun. You split your squad, three squads attacking from different sides, throwing hand grenades. That's how, exactly how you attack it. Now, uh, soldiers are very innovative. They, I wouldn't doubt that somebody came up with a grenade catapult somewhere, but there was mm-hmm. all kind of exotic weapons uh, and by the way, this is the first time the airplanes used in combat. Mm-hmm. Another nice little trinket, uh, poison gas. So this is war is different. It's a technological war. So I wouldn't doubt that people were experimenting with a lot of different mm-hmm. materials. The interesting part is that these American soldiers, although they kept their uniforms, they were issued uh, French equipment. Mm-hmm. Their show um, automatic weapon. Uh, this is a handheld machine gun that three men could handle rather than a full heavy machine gun. Uh, they had French accoutrements, ammo pouches, backpacks, helmets. They wore French helmets, mm-hmm. and they marched in French formations. Mm-hmm. So they they were trained in French tactics for use on the front, which made it very interesting and made them very unique. Uh, there's pictures of them in their French uh, accoutrements and weapons. And so they were practiced in uh, French uh, French tactics. And James Reese Europe, he's a lieutenant, by the way, decides he wants to go on a trench raid. Mm-hmm. So he did. He, he actually went on a oh. trench raid and got gassed. So he's one of the first African-American officers to go into battle and be wounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noble Sissel was in his band. And uh, older, I don't want to say older, more mature listeners would know the name Noble Sissel because he was part of the famous no, uh, Sissel and Blake uh, songwriting um, duo that uh, played on Broadway for many, many years after. I think Noble Sissel finally died in the, in the 70s. But in the meantime, he had many, him and Blake, Sissel and Blake had many Broadway shows. But uh, when James Reese was Europe, Noble Sissel told him uh, that he couldn't go on any more raids. He was too important a mm-hmm. guy to this regiment. Uh, no need to stick your neck out there like that anymore. And uh, while he was recuperating, um, they, they made a song called On Patrol in No Man's Land, which you can mm-hmm. still find uh, a recording of right well, now. Well, maybe we should explain what No Man's Land was and what the battlefield was like that they, these, these men encountered when they arrived in France. Well, trench warfare is probably the worst warfare you can think of. It is exactly that. Because of the area between the lines is called no man's land for a reason. Mm-hmm. Any man who ventures into no man's land is under the, under the machine gun fire. He could be gassed. There's artillery. Uh, this place looks like the moon. 
uh, with all of the damage and um, being done by the fighting there. And uh, in World War One, they would go do an attack called going over the top, which would mean mm-hmm. get out of the trench and try to rush across no man's land. Well, it's a meat grinder. Mm-hmm. Millions of men died trying to do that because the technology had outrun the tactics. Machine guns would not allow you to run across an open space to fight the enemy. Long before you reached the other side, machine guns would cut you to pieces. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Army generals at that time had grown up in a different era. Mm -hmm. Their tactics lagged behind the deadliness of of the technology, so millions of men died in these frontal attacks trying to cross no man's land to attack the enemy. It was laced with barbed wire. It was just, it was hell on earth. Mm -hmm. And if you're living in a trench, you can imagine what happens when it rains. Mm -hmm. Uh, This water runs down into the bottom of the trench. And so your feet are always wet and cold. Well, those conditions do something called a trench foot. This is an infection where Mm -hmm. your toes freeze, turn black, and come off. They literally rot your feet if you don't keep them warm and dry, but that's impossible if you're in a trench. And so many of the casualties uh, in World War I were not from direct fire from the enemy, but from disease. Uh, and trench foot was a great uh, uh, harvester of men. Uh, trench foot was terrible on, on both sides. Uh, and uh, rats and vermin living on the bodies of fallen soldiers were feature. Uh, uh, lice was uh, ubiquitous presence, and uh, you were stacked with men in a very confined area. So when disease breaks out, it just goes through everyone. The nutrition wasn't very good. And so the, gr- the grim reaper of the World War I was disease not the actual fighting, although you could account for millions from the fighting. So World War I was a hellish situation. And uh, soldiers who were taken up to the front, I don't think anybody wanted to be in, in a trench. But you couldn't very well just march across the field to fight with the enemy mm-hmm. because it, it, it was deadly. Although it was tried several times, Mm-hmm. It never really made a difference, and that's why these trenches stretched from the North Sea all the way down to Spain because it was a, almost a static situation, mm-hmm. trench war. Like a stalemate. It was of. a stalemate. It's exactly why the presence of the American soldiers made the big difference. Mm-hmm. It, it upset that balance that had, uh, had uh, happened by 1917-1918. The sides had gone back and forth, and the basically stayed the same, but the influx of American soldiers is now going to change that calculation. And the first of these soldiers are black soldiers, many of them from this area, one in Trenton, New Jersey. Hear the sound of the machine gun, hear it echo in the night. Mortars firing, rains the scene, scars the fields that once were green. It's a stalemate at the front line. Just a few show notes. We did get some feedback on the last two episodes about scientist Wilhelm Reich, who had very interesting theories about uh, life on Earth, including that it glowed with a blue light as a result of a cosmic force called orgone energy. 
Um, a true believer in orgone science wrote a comment on one of our episodes. Uh, he had some things to say about one of the sources we used, which was the book called Adventures in the Orgasmatron by Christopher Turner. And here's what James DeMeo wrote. Be aware, the book by Christopher Turner is one giant pack of hate-filled lies, fabrications, and half-truths about Wilhelm Reich. See the list below for rebuttals. Reich's name and work has been subjected to 80 years of slander and hatred from a variety of establishment nutcases. He was right, and they are wrong. And if you use Christopher Turner's materials to denigrate Reich, you are also wrong. Oh, then he provided some links to orgonlab.org and a few other sites that contain rebuttals. And I'll just quickly say that Turner is a respected journalist and his book is well-sourced and I am very confident using it as a reference. I actually did find those rebuttals before recording the episode and I did read them and I did not find them convincing. But if you want to check them out for yourself, you can go on communitynews.org and click on the link to episode 9, The Cloudbuster, and read the comments. And if you want to leave us feedback about how our organ energy is real or any other topic, check out our Facebook page, which you can find by searching for Forgotten History. Or also, you can send us an email at ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com. And if you want to help out our show and send us good vibes and dispel the radioactive deadly orgone energy, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the show. They, they get up to the front. And part of what you do when you're on front, you have a listening post to kind of spy on the enemy, kind of keep tabs on what they're doing. And Needham Roberts and Henry Johnson were put in outpost 29 in front of the line in France. And uh, the Germans decided they didn't want it there. They sent 20 uh, squad of Trent, 20 guys to take care of these two guys in the listening post. And so uh, actually when... Uh, Needham Roberts and Henry Johnson were laying in their, in their post. They heard the sound of wire being cut, the barbed wire being cut, and uh, tried to raise the alarm, but for whatever reason, nobody could hear them from where they were. Uh, so the Germans, in fact, attacked them, throwing grenades, and uh, one of the grenades knocked Needham Roberts unconscious, or semi-conscious. He was groggy. Mm-hmm. He, and uh, Henry Johnson fired his... LaBelle rifle, French rifle, until it jammed. By this time, these Germans had set upon Needham Roberts and were trying to drag him mm-hmm. away as a prisoner. But he wasn't just lying there, was he? He was, he was fighting back, even as he'd been well, he knocked did, out. Well, he could. He was, he was lobbing grenades, and he's mm-hmm. credited with uh, some of those grenades, wounding people, maybe killing some. But, he, yeah, but he was stunned. Let's, mm-hmm. let's put it that way. He was stunned by the grenade and was about to be captured, and Henry Johnson uh, took his uh, rifle but and used it as a club to uh, attack these Germans. In fact, one of them was killed by hit, being hit with the rifle butt. Henry Johnson got shot by a German Luger in his arm and in his shin. Needham Roberts had been hit in the elbow 
by a shot, and he had shrapnel from the grenade, so he's he's wounded. As he's being dragged away, Henry Johnson pulls out a bolo knife. Now, this is part of the French equipment. A bolo knife was uh, a knife that was traditional, traditionally used by, I think it's Moroccan soldiers. It's a kind of a traditional, it's a meat cleaver, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. It's a nasty-looking weapon. Uh, he used the bolo knife to penetrate the helmet Wow. One of the German shoulders, soldiers and made him, of course, drop Needham Roberts. And he spun around and with the same knife went across the stomach of a neck. neck one gutted the guy, spilled his intestines out with this knife. They dropped Needham Roberts, and he had come to uh, well enough to start lobbing grenades. And they killed about four guys in that little exchange. And these Germans figured out, these two guys ain't worth all of this. And they, they began to retreat, and Henry Johnson's calling out for, for help. And finally, word gets back uh, that they were under attack. And when the uh, French come to look at this scene the next morning, they find evidence that uh, four had been killed and maybe an additional eight had been seriously wounded because blood trails and footprints... Uh, kind of told a story. They found one hole that was half filled with blood. Somebody bled out in this hole. So they attributed a casualty to that. This is a great story, by the way. Our mm -hmm. colored soldiers come over to France and they, you know, really had a great fight. They right. called it the Battle of Henry Johnson. <laughs> and uh, this is, uh, they're going to be decorated. This mm -hmm. is a great so, and, Yeah, and, and also the, uh, the regiment earned a nickname. Uh, during right. this time, right? What were they called? Well, they were they were given the name Hellfighters. Mm -hmm. uh, in German, that's Schwarze Toflermenschen. It's black uh, men from hell. Mm -hmm. So they, it's a good name. We'll we'll keep it. Mm -hmm. We'll call ourselves uh, Hellfighters, mm -hmm. and they took on the name Harlem Hellfighters. And by the way, their number changed. When you're a National Guard unit, your uh, regiment is the 15th New York. They were given a regular Army designation. And it was the 369th. So they became known as the 369th Harlem Hellfighters. Some say it was the Germans who called them that, and they, the name stuck. Uh, there's some conjecture about who actually said it or mm -hmm. whatever. But they, they, they took that name. The Stars and Stripes magazine that the U.S. Army puts out, um, they did a story about that battle. And they said, uh, our colored soldiers smear 24 Huns, and the secret is out. These black soldiers didn't need to use lamp black in order to sneak up on the enemy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Great fear among the Germans, <laughs> right? So it was interesting to, to see the uh, comments of the time uh, mm -hmm. that went along with that. But long story short, these two Americans, Henry Johnson from Albany, New York, and Needham Roberts from Trenton, New Jersey, wound up being the first two Americans to win the Croix de Guerre medal with a uh, star and palm for, for uh, gallantry or valor, mm -hmm. one of those uh, accolades. So these were the first two Americans to win this particular medal. This is great stuff. This is a great story. In fact, these reporters had come over to introduce, uh, uh, interview James Reese Europe because of his great uh, musical exploits and then they walk into a ceremony where these two guys are being decorated. Mm -hmm. First first black yanks to be decorated, right? And so the story went into the newspapers, the syndicated, mm -hmm. in a little column called Did You Know? 
we have Ripley's Believe It or Not. Mm -hmm. At that time, they had one called Did You Know? Mm -hmm. And they would tell these little stories. And they put the Battle of Henry Johnson in the Did You Know? And that's in the funny papers syndicated all over the country, in fact, all over the world. So hmm. these guys become world famous oh. because of this exploit. Now, th there was a weird detail in those stories. Um, that I'm not sure. I, 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 I want to ask you what you make of this. They said that the guy that uh, Henry Johnson stabbed in the stomach was speaking English with no accent. I and the, the implication was that he was a, a German American who had defected to back to Germany and, and was fighting for them. Wow, uh, I hadn't heard that detail. <laughs> that was uh, in one of the accounts I read. I have no idea if it's true or not. I I'm going to look for it now because <laughs> I I hadn't read that, but uh -huh. uh, it's entirely possible. Mm -hmm. But it would seem to me if you're in the middle of a knife fight, you don't have time to kind of distill what this guy is. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's an American. Ah, do I detect a Brooklyn accent? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, it's plausible, but I, you know, it would be un unusual, I would think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway, they get um, the Croix de Guerre, and they become world famous. What happened after that? Were they taken off the front lines? Yeah, they were, because they were wounded pretty badly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, Needham Roberts had 14 wounds, and Henry Johnson had like 22 wounds. Jeez. So these guys were, they were, they had been uh, beaten pretty good in a fight with 20 guys, mm -hmm. <laughs> they, and wounded, uh, and uh, they thought Henry Johnson was going to die. He, he had been wounded that badly. I think he, I mentioned he had shot in the shin and in the arm, but he also got a wound in the side, so he was... He was uh, in pretty bad shape, and they thought he wasn't going to make it, but fortunately, he, he did. Now, I've got to understand something about Henry Johnson. He's he's five foot six, 135 pounds soaking wet. He's not this big, muscular uh, Adonis. He's a little, little guy, but mm -hmm. he's fighting for his life, and you can do a lot when you're when your life is on the line. And the same with Needham Roberts. This is not a hulking, muscular figure. He's a normal-sized guy. And, uh, again, when you're fighting desperately for your life, you can be a pretty dangerous uh, person. Uh, and all kind of studies, of course, immediately all the, the stories started being exaggerated. The Stars and Stripes talking about 24 Huns. The, the French only credited them with four killed, eight wounded. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we're up to 24. <laughs> so the, so this fish starts to grow <laughs> about exactly what happened. Stories uh, called Henry Johnson Black Death. Now this is the five foot six, 35 pound guy. He's, uh, now he's the Black Death, you know. Uh, kind of exaggerating. The story they were they were pulled back from the battlefield. In fact, they said, "Hmm, maybe we can help. They can help us recruit back mm -hmm. in the states." So they started uh, shipping them both back home. They stayed in France for a number of months to recuperate well enough to be shipped home. In the meantime, the regiment itself stayed on the front line and uh, participated in the Argonne Offensive, the mm -hmm. Meuse Argonne Offensive. Uh, in um, and by now, the American army had decided. Well, these guys are pretty good, so we want our soldiers back. <laughs> <laughs> so they were taken back into the American Army and issued their uh, American equipment again and took part in the uh, Meuse-Argonne Offensive of uh, 1918. And so they were assigned 
to attack a place called Seychelles. This is a fortified town um, with a river in front. Uh, I think it's the Meuse River in front. Uh, they were supposed to feint an attack in order to draw enemy forces to that area so that Americans could come upon the flanks. Well, as they attacked Seychelles, uh, the officers were killed who were leading the attack across the river, killed and wounded. And uh, the sergeants took over, you know, to fill in. And they, uh, while they were supposed to be faking an attack, fainting an attack, they actually drove into the city itself. Hmm. They got in with some pretty heavy casualties and uh, managed to take the place. Now, the American army's looking for them in front of Seychelles. They couldn't find them. Thought they were a lost battalion. Hmm. Uh, a couple of days later, they go into Seychelles. Well, what took you guys so long to get here? <laughs> No, we told you to do a faint attack. You didn't tell you to take it. Well, you want us to give it back? <laughs> so, you know, the, the entire unit was given a unit citation for mm -hmm. their attack on Seychelles. So now these, not only do they have the first two Americans when the quad again, the entire unit is now decorated. And uh, they, they ended up being one of the more decorated American units because of their length of time on the front, uh, the attack on Seychelles, and never having lost a foot of ground uh, in their time on the on the front line. So, this African American unit is now uh, famous, for lack of a, a better term, and uh, they had acquitted themselves very well. These 92nd and 93rd divisions acquitted themselves very well. Um, they demonstrated that if led properly, uh, black troops could perform as well as any other troops. Now, there were other divisions, black divisions there, I think the 90th, um, whose officers were Southerners. And you could see what the conflict would be, uh, given Southern attitudes in 1918 towards blacks. There was a great deal of friction between the officers and the men, and they didn't perform as well as they could have and should have, but that was a lack of insight on the Army's part by placing people in charge who really didn't believe in the ability of the soldiers. And so, by the way, that became important later on because that issue was cited in World War II as a reason why, you know, they didn't have as much faith in black soldiers while ignoring the exploits of the 369th and the 372nd and the 370th. Uh, regiments, how they had acquitted themselves. So that's a that's a later story in World War II. In fact, that was cited when they were trying to form the Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, look how they performed in World War One, and pointed to the bad examples rather than the good ones. Uh, but long story short, uh, Henry Johnson came back with the regiment to the United States, and Needham Roberts had been shipped out a little earlier. He was down in Cape May, New Jersey, recuperating. But they generated a lot of excitement. They came back to a ticker tape parade down Broadway in New York, which was a thrilling thing, remembering that they had left at night mm -hmm. uh, under the cover of darkness with only their wives and girlfriends to wave goodbye to. And when they come back, they have this rapturous reception. And there's a famous picture of them landing in New York um, <clears throat> where they show about six or seven of the guys showing their their medals, decoration medals, and they're all frowning. And I couldn't figure out why they seemed to be upset because their pictures on the boat, they also had photos of them coming back on the boat and they're singing and 
you know, they're all happy, they're coming home, they're highly decorated. The 369th Regiment had spent more time in France than any other American unit. They were one of the more highly decorated American units in the AEF. They had never lost a foot of ground. They had never had a man captured. They and uh, the first two Americans to be decorated with the Croix de Guerre with Palm and Star were in this unit. So they, they were in bully coming home. But then when they get on the dock in New York, these guys are all frowning, and I couldn't figure out what happened between the time on the boat and getting to the parade. Well, when they were coming down the gangplank, at the bottom of the gangplank, it said white color. Now, I've been in France. I've been mm-hmm. defeated in France. Mm-hmm. I've done all these things for my country, and as I come home, segregation we're going right back. There's your reminder. There's your reminder. In fact, that's might seem like a small thing, but uh, we talked about Blackjack Pershing. Blackjack actually penned, while he publicly said some complimentary things about these soldiers, uh, behind the scenes he had actually penned in a, a letter. It was called a naughty letter to the French. It says, do not eat with them. Don't compliment too highly, especially in front of white officers. It would cause friction. Um, keep your women away from them because they have penchant for rape. And uh, uh, we, we don't want you guys to spoil these guys because they're going to have to go back home eventually. And we don't want them to become an issue. Now, that's was published in the French newspapers. It got back to the United States. It found its way into the black press. So... Pershing was kind of two-faced in that in that regard. And by the way, although that moniker Blackjack had been given to him as a derisive term, but now that these guys have become famous and the term Blackjack now takes on a new meaning. It's like nightstick Blackjack. Mm-hmm. And so a general with a name, oh, Blackjack sounds kind of rough and tough. So now he has a different attitude towards that moniker. Uh, mm-hmm. Blackjack Pershing, it, people thought of a nightstick rather than being associated with black soldiers. And so he started wearing it with a great deal of a, a positive attitude. And he asked people to call him Blackjack, you mm-hmm. know, because it had taken on a different connotation. But that he was prescient in that these soldiers were now coming back to the United States, and this is segregated in America of 1919 and that uh, their exploits uh, uh, wasn't going to change the fact that they were colored mm-hmm. in the United States. But me, that is the way. They left the dock and went and had a, went a great, wonderful ticker tape parade down um, Broadway and past the library. Mayor LaGuardia was there to greet them. Henry Johnson was giving flowers in the car. Needham Roberts was still in the hospital at Cape May, so he didn't make that parade. But it was a, that's a big deal. Um, to have a ticker tape parade for these black troops. Mm-hmm. They marched in French formation to the um, armory. Uh, that was designed by, again, Vertner Woodson Tandy, which was one of their first black architects in New York. He's a founder of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity, in mm-hmm. fact, one of the seven founders. Uh, but uh, he, they marched to that armory and give them free cigarettes and candy, a chicken dinner. That was the big thing, though. Soldiers feed it to chicken dinner. So it was, again, these stereotypes are amazing. But uh, <clears throat> that that was a, a great uh, homecoming 
mm-hmm. for, for these soldiers. How many of them came back out of the ones that went to France? Um, they suffered uh, some heavy casualties, and I don't have the exact number uh-huh. in front of me, and I don't want to um, pass on any misinformation. Um, they suffered pretty heavy, heavy casualties in uh, the attack on Seychelles, but those <coughs> so, those numbers were replaced, so they came back with the whole mm-hmm. regiment. But they had suffered some pretty heavy heavy casualties from battle and Ill- disease. And I guess I should mention here, these soldiers coming home from World War One in 1919, um, the first casualties to get home were people stricken with the flu. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, this is the Spanish flu. This is the first worldwide pandemic. Now these soldiers coming home, bringing it back to their various homes and countries were the carriers of the Spanish flu, which devastated, again, millions of people around the world uh, with the Spanish flu in 1919. In fact, there was uh, such a desperate um, effort to try to stem this flu, they had to found something new called the health department. Mm-hmm. And it's to draconian things like uh, um, quarantines. And this is, this is new mm-hmm. because, but people are dropping left and right lack of immunity to this thing and so the world's first pandemic followed the first world war hard on and established the health department in every city every state and and the federal health department based on trying to deal with the spanish flu that came out of world war one so the conditions in the united states are in very dynamic right now it's uh we've won this war uh it's the war to end all wars but it set off uh, let's say a chain of events that we still deal with today. Of course, you know that World War One was the predicate for World War Two. Mm-hmm. Hitler was one of those uh, uh, soldiers in the trenches who had gotten gassed. In fact, he had a mustache that was a kind of a handlebar sucker. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get his gas mask to fit flat on his face uh, because of his mustache, and that's why he shaved off both sides. And that's why he had the famous Hitler mustache uh, in the middle was because he'd gotten gassed because he couldn't put the gas mask over his face. And he felt betrayed. He, he said, the Germans lost because we were stabbed in the back by the Jews in Germany. So this sets his worldview into motion as he comes back to Germany after World War I. The great powers had a, a great conference. Uh, they had, uh, the Ottoman Empire had sided with, um, with the Germans. And when they lost, the Ottoman Empire was dismantled. Well, what did that mean to the Middle East? Well, we're going to invent new countries, a place called Iran, Iraq, Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, the Emirates. These are all countries that were invented after the armistice in World War I. And by the way, the people who drew the map didn't take into account the ethnic differences of the people who lived in that area. For instance, the Kurds were not given any land. Those names sound familiar to you? Yeah. Uh, uh, people trying to, the Kurds trying to establish a homeland now on the Syrian border. This is all a result of what happened after World War One. Afghanistan, mm-hmm. another illustration. The Pashtuns were not given 
a part of the, their native mm-hmm. land, and they've been fighting about it ever since. Yeah. So. And uh, Ho Chi Minh was at that peace conference. Ho Chi Minh was at that he peace wa- conference. He wanted uh, liberty from France for, for Vietnam, and, exactly and right. America did not support him. Exactly right. So as I said, the, the, world war, the war to end all wars set a lot of things in motion around the world mm-hmm. that we are dealing with today. And on a much smaller scale, what happened to Needham Roberts after he came home? Needham Roberts came back to Trenton. By the way, Trenton was thrilled by having mm-hmm. such a war hero among our number. Uh, the mayor of Trenton, Mayor Donnelly, uh, put together a, a committee of over 100 people of notable names in Trenton. They had a purse of money for him uh, to come home. They set up a parade. They had a gold watch set for him. And uh, he was supposed to show up for the parade, but he was late. So it, he didn't quite get the reception uh, that had been planned for him, but he did show up later to a, um, to an event where he was presented with the money and the watch, and the whole town was thrilled by his um, appearance or uh, being uh, one of their native sons. In fact, uh, uh, the Trenton Times, the, no, the Times of Trenton at that time, the Times of Trenton did a survey. Uh, what do you like about Trenton? What do you don't like about Trenton? And they asked their subscribers to write back and express what it is they like. One of the more frequent responses was Needham Roberts won the quarter gears from Trenton. So Hmm. this is a source of pride for the entire city. Hmm. They said, oh, we don't like the dirty streets and the pigs in the yards. (laughs) But Roberts is from Trenton. He won the quarter gear. So this was a source of pride for the Trenton community. And so... He was treated like a local celebrity when he finally um, came home. He got married um, uh, and had a daughter and was um, doing quite okay for the time. One of the things that he and Henry Johnson did was, of course, during the intermission of uh, the talking movies, he would come on stage and give exploits about the battle where he won the Quadigare. He was kind of a featured speaker at uh, various events, and he was getting invited all around to talk about what he had done. And that fish kept growing and growing, and it started from four, went to 24, now it's 40. <laughs> <laughs> 40 Germans, killed by head, right? Uh, but uh, each, each telling, then the, uh, the number kept growing and growing. And uh, so he was making somewhat of a living that way. And I say somewhat because it wasn't steady enough that one could called it a livelihood, mm-hmm. but it was income, and, you know, the war is the topic of the time, and so he was getting that frequently, but an incident occurred where two girls, uh, uh, young girls, uh, 12 and 14, I believe, uh, accused him of uh, molesting them, and he was arrested for that, and uh, during his trial, he was. it was said... Uh, he couldn't have done it because he walked his girlfriend home from Washington Crossing and he had taken a certain route. And when he was asked um, why he took that route, he said, well, the other route was too dark. I took the other route. And the newspaper story headline was uh, decorated in France but afraid of the dark at home. And so, you know, this, this began to take some of the shine off of his star. He was later uh, released, acquitted of, of the charges, the reason being that, you know, he was such a popular figure 
and the proof from two kids, girls at that time, didn't hold enough weight to convict him, although many people suspected that he may have been guilty of it. It created a problem in his family. Uh, he ended up getting divorced um, um, for that and other things. Uh, so he, he began to fall upon some hard times. Uh, and he was finding it difficult to work because his arm was, uh, where he'd been shot, he couldn't use that very well. Um, and he had other things that were still bothering him from his wartime experience. I'm sure he had PTSD, uh, probably wasn't even recognized at the time, but this was his, his celebrity began to wane as time goes on mm -hmm. and, the, and, and the story of the war uh, begins to fade into the background, the, histor uh, the social memory. Henry Johnson and him uh, actually had a little falling out because uh, him and Henry Johnson, it's called the Battle of Henry Johnson, and Needham Roberts is making money off the story and dispute about who did what. Mm -hmm. uh, who say, In fact, Needham Roberts wrote his own little book, a pamphlet, more a brief uh, story of the adventures of a colored yank in France, and in that book, he saved Henry Johnson. <laughs> so, so it was, they fell out about that. A lot of drinking got involved in their, their living conditions. In fact, Henry Johnson became estranged from his family, hmm. and his wife left with the children. And as time went on, Henry Johnson, not being able to work, uh, was in a VA hospital where he passed away. Needham Roberts did odd jobs as best as he could find it, and finally he moved to Newark um, and was living in Newark in 1949. And uh, another girl, a girl who worked as a, at a movie theater, said that Roberts would, had been bothering her, and uh, he had got arrested for that. He got arrested for wearing his uniform. That part was very uh, interesting to me. I didn't realize that was even against the law to wear your military uniform. Yeah, after you're separated from service, I think you have a number of days or months that you can wear the uniform, huh. but after that, you, you're no longer a member of the military. You don't get to wear it. Mm -hmm. He was wearing it when he was giving his talks as a kind of colorful thing, mm -hmm. and uh, he got arrested for that. And then this girl made charges against him, and uh, he was bothering her, so when he was about to appear in court, him and his, his new wife, Iola, committed suicide, and that ended his story in, in Newark. Uh, 500 people came to his funeral. I guess the point here is that human beings are imperfect, period. Even our heroes have flaws, period. That's what makes history so fascinating is that it's the story of what human beings did under certain circumstances. And if we look for the perfect hero, I don't think we'll ever find them. The one perfect guy we knew about, they hung him on a cross. So everyone else is going to have flaws. And it's for us as reenactors and history buffs to tell the story as it is. You know, it may not be neat and tidy as we would like, but it's, it's, it's our mission to tell the truth so that people get a wider and deeper understanding about human nature and what it can bring out. And he did... He was a brave soldier in France. He, mm -hmm. he, he earned his medal and uh, wounded for doing so, but he did not get the Purple Heart. Hmm. He's got dozens of wounds, 
He's entitled to the Purple Heart, but the person in the Cape May Hospital who's taking down his record, even though he's laying there severely wounded, didn't put in for his Purple Heart, hmm. which is an amazing thing. He said the guy didn't like him. He told him he knew how badly he was wounded, but his response was, there were no black soldiers in combat in France. And so he didn't put in, well, I mean, this famous a story as it was, he, he <laughs> could do something like that, which really kind of gives, illustrates why some of these people were quite bitter mm -hmm. uh, about um, serving in the Army. In fact, in 1919, it was known as um, the Bloody Summer because many of these soldiers came back wearing a uniform for lynched. Who did you kill in Germany? Must have been white people. Therefore, you're a threat. You're a danger. And so uh, these soldiers put away their uniforms and didn't do a lot of talking about what, what went on based on how they were going to be received in society. It's a famous story of a soldier going home from World War I, a veteran. He gets off the bus in, this, I think it's Georgia, um, and was beaten by the people in the town and put his eye out, blinded, uh, for wearing his American Army uniform. So these, these things uh, were part of society at the time, and uh, it's not a pretty picture of uh, where this country was at that time. The Bloody Summer saw, featured more lynchings over that entire summer, a big uh, riot in Chicago between um, African-American World War I veterans and people in Chicago uh, over that summer. And so the, the, the story is, is one that's an ongoing one, by the way, when the... Um, 369th came back to the United States, and uh, some of the officers had moved on in their lives. They began to bring in new cadre of officers, and one of the first black generals, Benjamin O. Davis, senior, became the commander of the 369th. And why do we know his name? Because his son, Benjamin O. Davis, Jr., was commander of the Tuskegee Airmen. Hmm. So there's a lineage that begins to take shape of what these soldiers did and what happened in later years. And, you know, we could talk for an hour about what the <laughs> Tuskegee Airmen yeah. experienced and went through, um, which was the son of the first black general. He commanded the 369th for a period. So it's a, history's fascinating, and I mm -hmm. find that the true stories are often better than any fiction you could write. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and these are stories that need to be told because it informs people in the society of what happened, how we get here, what the heck are we doing in Iraq, why those people have such an issue with us in Iran, and why are they fighting? It's not because they wake up hating each other. There's reasons. There's, there's historical reasons and that resonate to this very day. And to the extent that we can understand those things, it helps us to inform our own decisions that we've got to make today. So history's not boring, especially if you got reenactors like me around. We have a lot of fun. We make it. We bring it alive. That's. I, I, I'm being a little facetious there, but our our mission is to bring history alive. It's, it's a lot different reading it out of a book rather than talking with a living person and interacting with them. The children love this stuff. I have mm -hmm. a great time. And you reenact World War One soldiers, right? I do World War One. I actually started out as a Civil War reenactor, mm -hmm. um, but being in Trenton, you can't ignore the revolution, so I, I also do um, 
uh, Revolutionary War reenacting. And then last year was the 100th anniversary mm -hmm. of the First World War in 2019. And uh, here's a story of a Trentonian, Needham Roberts, that needed to be told about World War I. So I adopted that persona as well. So, um, and here World War II commemorations are going to come around in 2020 and going forward. And I guess I'll pick someone from this area and kind of pick up their uh, persona and study them and and uh, try to inform the public about just what's mm -hmm. going on in their midst. Well, I think you summed it up perfectly about why we need to remember history. And that is, in fact, why we have this podcast, Forgotten History. Uh, so I hope, hopefully, everyone listening, you took something away from from this and uh, Algie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure and a, what a fascinating story. Uh, Dikan, thank you for having me and I'm flattered to pieces that you would even consider me. Thank you. I bet you didn't know you were going to learn the origins of Hitler's mustache by listening to this episode. And special thanks to my guest today, Algernon Ward Jr. If you want to see him in person portraying Needham Roberts, the old barracks museum in Trenton is holding an event on Saturday, February 29th called Four Centuries of African-American Soldiers. There are going to be reenactors there of soldiers all the way from the Revolutionary War up to the First Gulf War. And for more information about that event, you can go to barracks.org. Now, I looked up the casualties suffered by the 369th Infantry Regiment. It turns out they had the most losses of any American regiment of the entire war, with 1,500 casualties. That means killed or wounded. Now, you may, rem now you may remember that a regiment typically has about 1,000 men. So what that means is they would lose people, then they would get replacements, and then the replacements would suffer casualties too. And this went on for months of heavy fighting. So if you went overseas with this regiment, your chances of coming back wounded or not at all were extremely high. Uh, also, briefly, Algie mentioned James Reese Europe and jazz music and the idea that the word jazz came from his initials. Uh, that is one of about a million different theories about the origins of the word jazz. Um, and my apologies to the nation of France for my pronunciation of the Croix de Guerre. Uh, Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service and is recorded in beautiful Lawrenceville, New Jersey. A lot of people tell me how much they like the cool theme music. And the song is The Quiet Earth, and it's by an artist by the name of Thomas Brandon. And is used with permission. Thanks. Thank you for listening. As we sail away from the Kai. And amidst all the tears And the shouts and the cheers We sailed off for Gallipoli How well I remember That terrible day When the blood stained The sand and the water and how in that hell that they call Sovlevay We were butchered like lambs at the slaughter Johnny Turkey was ready, he primed himself well He showered us with bullets and he rained us with shells and in five minutes flat, he'd blown us all to hell. Nearly blew us right back to Australia. And the band played waltz 
sing Matilda As we stop to bury our slain And we buried ours And the Turks buried theirs And it started all over again Now those who were living did their best to survive In that mad world of death, blood and fire And for seven long weeks I kept myself alive Though the corpses around me pile higher Then a big Turkish shell knocked me arse over tick And when I awoke in my hospital bed And saw what it had done Christ, I wished I was dead Never knew there were worse things than dying And no more I'll go on sing Matilda So the green bushes so far and near For the hang tens and pegs A man needs two legs No more will sing Matilda for me They collected the cripples, the wounded and maimed And they shipped us back home to Australia The legless, the armless, the blind and insane Those proud wounded heroes of Sobler And as our ship pulled into Circular Quay I looked at the place where my legs used to be And thank Christ there was nobody waiting for me To grieve and to mourn and to pity And the band Played waltzing Matilda As they carried us down the gangway But nobody cheered They just stood and stared And they turned their faces away And now every April I sit on my porch And I watch the parade pass before me I see my own comrades 
how proudly they march Reliving the dreams of past glory I see the old men all twisted and torn The forgotten heroes of a forgotten war And a young people ask me what are they marching for And I ask myself the same question And the band plays waltzing Matilda And the old men still answer the call But year after year Their numbers get fewer Someday no one will march there at all Waltzing Matilda Waltzing Matilda Ooh, Go a waltzing Matilda with me 